Hi, I'm Lou Eisen. This is another episode of Ring Talk. Just wanted to mention to the producer off the top, the photo he has there, I think at the beginning, I'm I'm not sure. I think it's Tony Canzanieri and McLaren, but I'm not sure. It may actually be Barney Ross. Anyways, we're talking about Barney Ross and Jimmy McLaren in their first fight. Within a year, they had three epic fights, and McLaren entered into the fight as the Undisputed World Welterweight Champion. And, you know, people on on YouTube, not YouTube, well, maybe YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, well, any platform you can name, they're always the greatest fighters of all time, pound for pound, and the greatest welterweights, and the greatest American fighters, and the greatest, you know, Irish fighters, greatest Jewish fighters, greatest Canadian fighters. It would hard to be argue, uh, argue against Jimmy McLaren being considered the greatest Canadian fighter of all time. Jimmy McLaren um, beat, fought, and and uh, beat 13 future Hall of Famers and 14 world champions, or 14 Hall of Famers and 13 world champions. And the guys he beat were just unbelievable when you look at his record. These were names that still stand out today. Um, uh, you know, uh, Hulu, well, Billy Petrol was one of them, the Fargo Express, Bud Taylor, the terror from Terre Haute, and a lot of these guys, Ruby Goldstein, Al Singer, uh, Barney Ross, Tony Canzanieri, Lou Ambers, Pancho Villa, Fidel LaBarba, all champions, and, and Jackie Fields, who was also a champion. And at the time this was going on, this was a unique time. In 1934, you have the the depths of the Great Depression. It had hit in 1929. Everyone was wiped out. And just as a sidebar, my name is Lou Eisen, E-I-S-D-N, and I, my great uncle Dave, who was a doctor in Toronto, who was the first Jewish radiologist in Toronto and Canada, and one of the first in the world, he, he wrote a book about our family. And I'm reading this book years ago as a kid, I'm 62 now, and it's mentioning how in Toronto, our family was had millions of dollars, and I didn't know this, and lived on where Sunnybrook Hospital is now, where it's hundreds of acres. And I said to him, what happened? We had all this money, we had servants, we had a fortune, and he said, a thing called the depression. I said, really? He said, within a week, we lost everything, and we're living all together cramped in a small house downtown like, like all, every branch of the family because of the great depression and that's what happened all over north america and canada people lost everything savings were wiped out and what the mclaren and ross fights were important for is that it gave people hope and what more can you give someone than hope you get if people would listen to these fights and for one night for one night they could escape the misery the fact that they had no job to go to they couldn't feed their kids how are they going to pay rent but they could listen to these two great fighters who are best described as gentlemen warriors go after each other. And at the time of the fight, and the fight occurred in, in the Madison Square Garden Bowl in Long Island City, Queens, May 28th, 1934. And entering the fight, Barney Ross um, was the lightweight and junior welterweight champion of the world. He won both those titles. I'm going to get the exact date from Tony Canzanieri. Uh, on September 12th, 1933. Um, and to get a chance, look up Kanzaneri, C-A-N, 
Z-O-N-E-R-I on, on uh, Wikipedia, Google, whatever. Canzaneri was the lightweight champion of the world and also and, and featherweight champ and also a part-time mobster. So he was an interesting character. So Jimmy McLaren's born in, in uh, Ireland and they moved to Dublin when he's around four and then they move over to Canada. His family settles in Saskatchewan, had 11. I think, I think there was 13 of them all together, including Jimmy, uh, kids. And one of them died on the way over. And Jimmy, his family's in Saskatchewan, and they can't make a living farming, which no one could uh, in the 1930s, which is upsetting because it's one of the reasons why so many people starved. Uh, in Canada, especially, farming's the backbone of our country and always has been, always will be. So then they moved to Vancouver, and Jimmy, who was um, uh, born December 19th, 1907, and his father, Sam, they're growing up in Vancouver, and he runs a secondhand uh, clothing store, barely makes enough money. And Jimmy gets a job at seven or eight, and he's, he's you know, selling newspapers, and his favorite sport back then was soccer, which he would play. Soccer was a great sport. It's the most popular sport in the world. It is a great sport. And it it was popular back then for the same reason it is today. People that were poor could play it. You could play it because you didn't need anything. All you needed was a ball, which was easy to find, and a lot of energy. You know, sometimes you didn't even need shoes. So he's playing soccer. He's selling newspapers on the corner and a couple times in the newspapers, you know, he gets to the corner, someone's taking his corner. He's only eight or nine, he's tiny. He's got to fight to get that corner back and he does and he wins. And a couple times during a soccer game, he gets to a fight with the other team and then the other guy starts throwing punches. But Jimmy is so quick and so strong for his size that he just demolishes these bigger kids. Watching the game with Sam McClarnon was a man who was integral to Jimmy McClarnon's life and career. Pop Foster. Pop Foster uh, served in the Canadian military in World War One. He was highly decorated, a brilliant boxing man. His, you know how people today, I'm 62, so people my age will say to you, kid, you didn't see uh, Muhammad Ali, you didn't see the real thing. And for my money, the greatest fighter, greatest heavyweight champ of all time was Joe Lewis. But back then, for you know, for fighters below heavyweight, the greatest fighter people thought was Tommy Ryan. And that was the highest compliment you could give someone, the former middleweight champ. And Ryan also refused to fight the great Canadian black middleweight, George Budge Byers. So we have Pop Foster. And Pop Foster's at that soccer game. And he knows McLaren, his dad, Sam, and they're talking. And he sees Jimmy. He's around 13, 14 at the time. You know, 5'2", 5'3". And there's a kid who's like 5'11". Starts bullying him. And Jimmy just stands there and beats the hell out of the guy. And knocks the guy out cold. And Pop Foster walked over and said hi. And he said, listen, how old are you? He said, I'm 13. And he said, let me tell you something, son. If you do what I say and train hard and don't smoke and don't drink and exercise every day and eat properly, you'll be wealthy beyond your means within 10 years and you'll be a world boxing champion. And McLaren was taken aback, of course, but he believes him. And so a couple of years later, you know, they're fighting and he's training them. And first two fights in Vancouver. And as even as happens today, they're fighting in a stadium in Vancouver, which sells out. But McLaren only gets $50 for beating Young Fry in his debut. 
And then he fights something like nine days later, another guy and beats him another $50 in front of a sold out stadium. And, and pop Foster said, well, that's it. This is, we're not going to do anything here. So he goes down to California with them and he has trouble getting fights for Jimmy because Jimmy looks so young when he's 15, he looks like he's eight or nine. And so most promoters would say, I understand what you're saying. I'm not stupid. I'm not deaf, but I'm not going to put a child in with a grown man and have him murdered in a, in a fight card I'm promoting. I'm not going to prison for that. And they were desperate, you know, their, their savings were, were dwindling. And Foster was cooking for them on a hot plate in a, in a one-room place that they shared. And finally, Foster just said to a promoter, look, here's the deal. Uh, give me your, and he was a flyweight at the time. Give me your best flyweight. My guy, my boy Jimmy, or my Jimmy, as he always called him affectionately, will fight your guy for free. And if we win, you give us more fights. And the promoter said, sure. It's the depression. Everyone's having a hard time. So this guy must be desperate. And he was. So this, so the promoter's thinking, well, I'll put him in with the best flyweight I have. He'll knock the kid out. I'll never have to bother this guy again. Jimmy hasn't fought a professional, oh, had the two professional fights in Canada. So he gets in the ring with this guy, and this guy's, you know, got 30 or 40 fights under his belt. And Jimmy just beats the hell out of him easily. And the promoter, you know, just like out of the movie, he's got a big cigar, and then cigar falls to the ground. He can't believe it. And so he keeps booking Jimmy, and Jimmy keeps knocking these better guys out easily. Of course, Jimmy's in great shape. And one of his first big fights is he fights the former world flyweight champion, Pancho Villa, who was dying that, at, at that time from pyorrhea, which is gum disease. And I guess McLaren probably made it worse when he hit him and spread the poison around. But uh, Jimmy, years later, wouldn't take credit for the win. He said, Pancho Villa didn't know me. There was no film on me then. And so he, I was just some kid from Canada who fought several times down there. So as a former world champion, obviously he probably looked at me and thought, this kid's nothing. I don't need to get ready for him. And he didn't. Plus he was ill. And Jimmy really gave him a ferocious beating. It was the last fight via hat. But then he fights, you know, future world champions, Fidel LaBarba, beats him easy. Fights Jackie Fields, future world champion, beats him easy. So he's fighting all these guys and he's just, he, he's beating the hell out of them. At the same time, just uh he was just a bit older than barney ross he's born in 1907 as i said barney ross was born december 23rd 1909 and in uh, new york city his family moves to chicago he's got a close-knit family and they open a grocery store in chicago and it's a very religious jewish family and his father a couple of guys walk in one day two or three guys and they murder his father and it's tough enough being, as Richard Pryor said, just waking up every day, being a decent human being, given all the stuff that's heaped on people every day, all the verbal abuse. Well, you know, Barney Ross was upset because the police had an idea of who did it. And there was an old, very old Jewish man who was a witness, but he was threatened. And he said, I can't testify because they said they'll kill me and my grandkids and my wife. So. He wouldn't testify and this enraged Barney Ross. And it left a chip on his shoulder that never went away and a scar in his heart that never went away. And so Ross, you know, from the age of 12, 13, started to act out, he started to smoke, started to drink, started to get into gang fights and he never lost. 
he would just think about his father and he said he would beat these guys. He would knock them down and then he would stomp on, on their testicles until they screamed in pain and he would keep doing it. He wanted to kill these guys. And this went on and on and on and on. He would run low level errands for the mob for, for uh, Al Capone. And one day, you know, after a cop stopped him, a cop said, you know what, why don't you try boxing? That way, you know, it's legal and you could make good money doing this. And so he got into the Golden Gloves and, and he trained, won the Golden Gloves and fought for five years as an amateur from 24 to 29. But by 29, in the Depression, his family's broke. And what happened was after his father was murdered, his mother had a complete and total nervous breakdown. So his siblings all had to be split up with different Jewish orphanages. And this was a further kick in the stomach for him. So he turns pro, and it's interesting. He turns pro in his first five fights are in California, same as Jimmy McLarnon. And he's fighting, and he's fighting, and he's doing well. And his manager, Sam Pian and Art Winch, who later took Tony Zell to the world title, they're behind him. And he's and all through the you know late 20s, early 30s, he's starting to pile up a bunch of names of guys that he's beaten. And, and you know, guys like uh, uh, Frankie Click, and and other guys and he's he's dominating these guys he he's not a power puncher although he had one more knockout which is funny and uh ross because mclaren is looked at as a power puncher ross had 22 knockouts he had 74 wins 22 knockouts only four losses three draws and was and uh, was never knocked out in his last fight against uh, henry armstrong the fight ended after 15 rounds it could have been stopped a lot earlier because armstrong was pounding him, but Armstrong carried him uh, to the end and let him survive the 15 rounds. So he's doing well, Ross, and then he gets a chance uh, and he fights Tony Canzaneri, September 12th, 1933, and he wins the the light, world lightweight title and the synthetic junior welterweight title. It's called synthetic because it wasn't really recognized then like it is today as a major title. And Ross always had trouble making weight. He was uh five seven and a half McLaren was five six and a half and ross um you know for the 135 pound title will come in at 131 132 and junior welter was 140 but he would never make that weight but he still beat canzaneri convincingly and canzaneri was a, was a hall of fame world champion he was a fantastic fighter at this time McLaren's beating everyone and his manager, Pop Foster, takes him to New York where he starts doing well. Here's where the story gets really interesting. Pop Foster was childhood friends of Oni the Killer Madden. Oni the Killer Madden ran boxing. He was originally from Ireland. He was a childhood friend and neighbor of Pop Foster, McLaren's manager. So when you'd go to New York, you'd pay a visit to Madden and get his permission to fight in his city. And the way it worked in New York was... You had, you had uh, in terms of the hierarchy, if it was in control, you had General Phelan, a former underwear salesman, running the New York State Athletic Commission. He knew nothing about boxing. Above him in power was Jimmy the Boy Bandit Johnson, the promoter. And of course, the ultimate power was only the killer Madden. So the mob got into boxing in the early 20s with the advent of Jack Dancy's Million Dollar Gates because it was worth it to them. And they controlled it. You know, they were involved in both the Dempsey's fights with Tony. They were involved in every fight up to then. And people would say, uh, you know, why did the mob maintain such a stranglehold? 
Well, the mob were the only people during the Depression that had disposable income to promote fights. Who else had it? No one else had it. No one had that kind of money. The mob did. So um, Oni Madden says, yeah, you guys can fight here. I'm not going to take a piece of your money. This is what Foster and McLaren claimed. If that's true, then it's the only fighter. He's McLaren is the only fighter in the 322-year history of modern Boston, boxing where a mobster actually said, I'm not interested in robbing you. So I, I don't believe that. I mean, I believe he may have said it, but he sure, certainly didn't stick to it. So there we have we, there we have McLaren, and McLaren is doing well, and he's he's selling out everywhere he's fighting in New York, everywhere in, in California. Bob Foster had two main rules that you had to stick to if you wanted to fight Jimmy McLaren. One is McLaren had to be the better paid fighter in the fight, and he, he had to be the heavier fighter. Why were those rules instituted by Foster? Because McLaren was the big draw. His spectacular knockouts, his backward somersaults after he won the fight, he filled stadiums. So there was a time when young Jack Thompson, a welterweight champion, was fighting in New Jersey, and he's drawing 400 people during the height of the Depression. And there's McLaren fighting Madison Square Garden, drawing 18,000 people. So McLaren is making way more money than the champion. But there comes a point where Pop Foster says, hey, you know, 50, 60 years from now, we want to look back at your legacy, and it's good to have a world title. And so they decided they would fight um, young Corbett III in Los Angeles for the world title. And he fought him on um, May 29th, 1933, and the fight lasted uh, two minutes, 37 seconds, and just destroyed him. And he was now the new world welterweight champion. And he was a cherub or cherub. He was a guy that everyone liked. He was friendly. He was a gentleman. And he really was a gentleman. And he was smart with his money. So And so was Foster. And so the problem after winning the fight was he did really well. He wins the world title in under three minutes in the first round. Breaks his hands. Breaks his knuckles. Breaks his fingers. And he can't train now. He wants to fight again in a month or two months to capitalize on the title belt to get even more money, but he can't. He takes a year off to let his hands heal. And for him and Foster, they were very, very uh, pragmatic about boxing. They did, you know, Foster said to McLaren, there's two, only two reasons to be a professional boxer, just two. Either you like it, which McLaren did not like it, and the other reason is to make money. And that was the only reason they were in the sport, to make money. And so the, when you watch the fights he took, he fought the best fighters in each weight class. You know, Louis Kid Kaplan, former world featherweight champ, Ray Miller, tremendous featherweight, uh, um, uh, Billy Petrel, the Fargo Express, Canzanari, Amberts, all these guys that he fought, you know, McClarnon took on the best and beat them. So except for Miller, who was uh, uh, gave him a ferocious beating. And after seven rounds, Foster just said, this isn't worth it. Uh, we're too far behind in the cards. Let's just stop it. And that was the only time one of his fights was stopped because Foster was smart. And he said, well, there's no point in this. We're only making so much money. I don't want to jeopardize future pay gates or pay dates. So uh, the way that Foster and McClarnon determined who they were going to fight next was uh, who could they can make the most money with? They wanted to get a big name, but
but it had to be someone they could make a lot of money with. That was the only reason for them to get into the ring. And so the New York State Athletic Commission, which was the most powerful boxing body then in the United States, said to McLaren, you know, it's been almost a year. You got to defend your title. So they started to suggest different people who weren't very good. And Bob Foster said, I understand, but we're not going to make any money. You know, we're not getting in the ring fighting these guys unless we can make money. And then they say, how about Barney Ross? We'll fight Barney Ross. And Foster and probably McLaren didn't see Barney Ross as a true threat to the reign of Jimmy McLaren. He, this is a guy who was a stick and move fighter. He wasn't a knockout puncher. This was a guy who would jab you silly from the outside, throw punches from a long range, and keep moving and moving around the ring. He wasn't going to stand there and go toe-to-toe with you. And anyone who did that against McLaren was an idiot anyways because they were only going to get knocked out. You don't play to another fighter's strength. And why would you stand in front of a killer like Jimmy McLaren and trade shots with him? It makes no sense. So the backdrop to all this, well, this is going on in 1933. Hitler gains power in Germany. And there's a worldwide wave of anti-Semitism, not just Germany, but across um, Europe, much like today. And then in the United States, much like today. And... Where Ross is from in New York, you know, there's an uneasy tension for many years between the Irish immigrants and the Jewish immigrants. They don't like each other. And the Irish have been discriminated against for many years since they first came to the United States. But the Depression destroyed the upward mobility of all groups, especially the Irish, who, who are amongst, if not the hardest hit, of ethnic groups by the Depression. and they, there was a thing there called the Christian Front, which was comprised of Irish Catholics who went out to Jewish neighborhoods looking to beat up Jews. So there were a lot of fights. Back then, there was, you know, the Louis Farrakhan of his day, Charles E. Coughlin, Coughlin who, who was a, a Catholic priest, and he had 30 to 35 million listeners a week on his radio show, and he would spew the most vicious anti-Semitism. And so it was a really highly charged racial climate. And then you add to this mix the fact that Jimmy McLaren, who didn't care about race, his idol was Benny Leonard. You know, his two best friends in boxing were Benny Leonard and Joe Lewis. But he was called the Jew killer in the Hebrew scourge, scourge, because he'd beaten so many great Jewish fighters. And he actually had to go to the newspapers and threaten to sue them, because he said, I have a lot of very close Jewish friends. I don't like these comments. And of course, New York papers back then wanted to use any ethnic slur to describe a fight. So he was very upset. But nevertheless, he did beat, you know, Ruby Goldstein, the idol of the ghetto, who later became a great referee. Um, Sid, Sid Terrace, you know, he beat a lot of great Jewish fighters. And he knocked him out. And it was said that Jewish fighters, when they saw McLaren and lost their nerve. And this really pissed off Barney Ross. But what, what McLaren had done is he beat the most popular Jewish fighter of all time, Benny Leonard. Benny Leonard was the former world lightweight champion and held it for over seven years and retired with a sizable fortune, lost it all in the Depression, had to come back as a welterweight, won fights, 22 fights, I think, against no hopers. And then he had to fight McLaren, who begged him not to take the fight, but he said, I'm broke, I have to take the fight. McLaren stopped him, I think, in six or seven rounds. He gave him a terrible beating. 
And the papers trumpeted the fact that, you know, no Jewish fighter can beat them. They all lose their courage in the dressing room. And, and there were a lot of well-known writers, you know, back then, Damon Runyon and, and, and others who, who would say these things. And Barney Ross was really upset by that, especially because his hero was Benny Leonard. So Ross was training furiously and the training camps may have played a part in what happened. Ross's team of PN and Winch always spent a lot of money to get the best training camp and the best sparring partners, the best food, the best equipment, and made sure that Barney had more than enough time to get in shape. Pop Foster, who was, who was the manager of Jimmy McLaren, was very parsimonious. He was a cheap SLB. So Foster or McLaren's sparring partners were broken down old pugs in their late 30s, early 40s, and they weren't really pushing him that much. And equipment was substandard. He didn't tr he trained, but basically, as Foster said, at this point in Jimmy's career, what more is he going to learn? It's just a matter of shedding the weight. Now, Foster, who was brilliant at looking after Jimmy's interest, made an uncharacteristic mistake here, which was he got Peen and Winch. He had a contract with them, and he agreed with them that that it would be a catch weight, and that. McClarnon would come in no more than 142 pounds. Well, he'd been fighting at 147 for like four or five years. So to not have those extra five pounds, which he needed for his fuel tank, you know, he was so worried about coming in overweight and being stripped of the title and being fined financially that McClarnon came in at 142 and it was just too light for him. So he comes in at 142. Ross comes in, I think, something like a 137, 138. And they fight at in um, the Madison Square Garden Bowl in Long Island City, Queens. And before he had fought uh, McLaren, Ross had had four or five fights, like in the in the recent past, within the previous three four months. So he was razor edge sharp. This was McLaren's first fight in a year, so he had a lot of ring rust. And going into the fight, the main question was, how is this going to play out? McLaren had heavy hands. How could Ross withstand McLaren's punches and still survive? Could he take McLaren's best shots? And how would McLaren handle the tremendous hand speed and footwork of Barney Ross? And McLaren himself was a great technical fighter. And so the fight started, and for the first five, six rounds, you would think, because he's been off for a year, that McLaren is just, you know, not on the money, but he is. He's very accurate with the shots. He's landing great shots on Ross. But to the surprise of everyone in attendance, Ross is taking these flush shots. And he's moving and he's turning uh, McLaren and he's landing that jab. And McLaren has no answer for the jab. But Ross is a lot tougher than they think. Brilliantly skilled technical fighter. So after the five or six rounds, you know, most of those rounds are, are they're close, but they're in the favor of McLaren. But as you and six, seventh, eight rounds are good rounds for for McLaren too. But as the fight gets into the later rounds, from the eighth to the fifteenth, McLaren, because he's been off for a year, starts to fatigue, and his accuracy nose dives. Now he's missing a lot of punches, and he's walking into a lot of traps. What McLaren liked to do was corner a man in the ring, especially in the ring corner, and wail away. And there were no man in his weight class who could stand up to a beating like that. But Ross would set these traps and then McLaren would walk in and Ross would use McLaren's momentum against him to hit him with a right hand, you know, fast three, four, five punch combinations. And when Jimmy started to unload, Ross would just clinch him 
walk him to the ropes, let the referee break, and then Rossum move back 10 feet, forcing Jimmy to keep moving ahead. And Jimmy's starting to tire now because he's cutting, the, trying to cut the ring off, but Ross keeps moving over and over and over, forcing him to climb him to take more steps. And it, it, it was a close fight, and it was a controversial fight. All three of their fights were very controversial. First, second, third. Why was this fight controversial? Because of the people scoring it. One of them was Judge Tom O'Rourke. Tom O'Rourke used to be the manager of George Dixon. He was a mean, nasty, vicious guy. And he was in uh, Max Schmeling's dressing room just before Schmeling beat Lewis the first time they fought. I had a heart attack just and died before Schmeling went into the ring. And he did not like the other judges. You know, he, he didn't like Frank Forbes or Harry Barnes. Uh, Forbes was the referee who also judged the fight. Barnes judged the fight, and he was an uh, optometrist, which is rather ironic, given his later scorecard, which I'll get to in a sec. So not, these three guys hated each other. They despised each other, and they didn't respect each other. And there was articles I found, which I'll, I'm putting in my book, where these people, uh, Forbes and O'Rourke, Barnes got into fistfights. They got into fistfights after scoring fights. You know, there's fights where where uh, Forbes is there uh, and, and Barnes is refereeing or Forbes is refereeing, and they're watching a fight, and the guy fouls another guy three or four times, and the referee says, that's a point, that's a point. And Forbes is there saying, no, he's scoring the fight. I'm not taking a point off. I disagree with the referee. Even though you have to. That's the rule. When the referee says you have to, he's saying, no, I'm not. And he got cited for that. And then you have him attacking Barnes, and he got in trouble. Barnes attacked him, and Forbes got in trouble for it. So it, it was just it, it, these were the wrong guys because in New York you had some of the best judges and referees on earth, and they, had, they should have cast a net much wider. Why were these guys picked, though, if they're that incompetent? Well, you have to look at who did the choosing. It wasn't General Phelan, head of the New York State Athletic Commission, or Jimmy Johnson. It was Oni Madden. Why was it Oni Madden? Because he controlled boxing. And why did he pick three guys that hate each other? Because if they're not aligned and they don't like each other, it's much easier for the mob to get them to do their bidding. Why did he want the mob, mob want them to do their bidding? Well, before the fight, McLaren had said to his manager, Pop Foster, who would meet regularly with Oni Madden, if I beat Ross, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. I don't need it anymore. Don't need the money. Don't enjoy it. And possibly, we don't know, but Foster may have said this to Madden. At that point in time in 1934, Jimmy McLaren was the biggest draw in all of boxing. And proof is in the pudding when they fought this fight at the Madison Square Garden Bowl, it was sold out. You know, you had 30, 40, 50,000 people there. McLaren was a draw. And because it was a depression and boxing was one of the mob's rackets, Madden's thinking, we can't allow this. I cannot allow the biggest draw in the sport just to walk away because he feels like quitting. And this is what happens is this leads to the bizarre sport card, sports card. So you have Tom O'Rourke, who scores the fight, and he gives nine rounds for um, uh, McLarnon, one round for Ross, and five rounds even. 
And then you have Forbes and Barnes going to fight. And I think it was Forbes who had um, something like 13 rounds uh, Ross, one round McLarnan, and one round even. And then you have Barnes who's 12 rounds Ross, one round McLarnan, and two rounds even. So the scorecards are wildly diverse. And what's interesting about the scorecards is Barney Ross won the fight. Jimmy McLaren didn't debate that. He said, a guy can't be good. I can't be effective fighting once a year. But because my hands are broken, I had no choice. I had to take time off to let my hands heal. And he admitted Barney won the fight. He was the better fighter technically. But the scorecards were a mess. So this is the great conundrum of the fight. Ross genuinely won. He didn't need the help of the mob to help him win. But the scorecards sort of belie that because they were so terrible and the fight was so much closer than the scorecard said. Yes, Ross won. But a better score probably for Ross would have been 8-6-1 or even 8-7 for Ross, you know, rather than 13-1-1 one, one, or 12-2-1. Or, or and and even the card that was for McLarnon, you know, nine rounds Jimmy and, and one round Ross. I mean, obviously, they weren't watching the same fight, or they were, and they were scoring either to their bias, which is incompetency and not allowed, or to what the mob wanted them to score. And so this fight was in the news for a long time, and they had the supporters there, and Pop Foster was furious because Foster had gone to the commission and said before the fight, and this is an important point, you can't allow these officials to judge the fight because um, Frank Forbes is a newspaper writer and he's written articles for the past three, four months about how my guy Jimmy's a bum and how Ross is going to beat him. And that should have disqualified Forbes. The New York State Athletic Commission said, no, that's a bias. You're not involved in the fight. But that would only happen if the New York State Athletic Commission under General Phelan were responsible for picking the judges. They weren't. Only Madden was. And only Madden wanted people there to ensure that his biggest money-making guy, Jimmy McLarnon, was going to still keep fighting no matter what happened. So he knew if McLarnon wins, you know, he's, he's retired. If he loses, he'll want another chance. Now, it was a close fight. I've seen the fight. You can watch it on YouTube. I think Ross genuinely won, but it could go either way. It was extremely close. Now, here's an interesting story. This is a true story. Uh, Chris Dundee, Angelo's Dundee's brother, who was a promoter at the time, was there. When they first fought at Madison Square Garden, one of their first fights there, Bob Foster is in the dressing room, and he's taping up Jimmy's hands. He's massaging his shoulders, and three wise guys walk in, three mob guys. And they say, hey, take a powder. We're managing him now. And Foster said, oh, I don't manage. But you did. I'm just a trainer. Oh, who manages? Uh, Owen somebody. And he said, I have a number here. And, and so these three idiots call the number, and only Madden picks up. Listen, you stupid MMF, you know, MF, blah, blah, blah. We're taking over your guy, and you can't do this. There's nothing you can do, and you better not show your face. Of course, only Madden is listening to this. 
you know, and he's turning red. So he gets 20 of his, his goons to go down and he walks in and Fawcett just says, those guys. And there's three of them. And, you know, these 20 guys have managed to take out their guns and they escort these three guys out. No one ever saw them again. Never found their bodies. They never came home to their families. No one ever saw them again. Oni Madden was not a man to be trifled with. In fact, when Oni Madden went to prison for uh, parole violations and he came out in 31, 32, by 1934, they kept hassling him, uh, the FBI, New York State Police. So he moved to Arkansas where he became the godfather of Arkansas. He had his own gangster hideaway in, 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 uh, in a resort. In, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and people would come down, Hot Springs, Arkansas, excuse me, and gangsters would always come down like a Luciano did to hide out with him. But from that day, 35, until the day he died in the 65, he would always get an envelope from the mob for various rackets, including boxing. So no one went against what Only Man had said. Only Man was responsible for the killing of former light heavyweight champion Battling Siki, the death of Harry Graham and Tiger Flowers. They were killed by overdoses of ether administered by the same mob doctor for the killing of Bill Brennan, who wouldn't pay the mob tax to Dutch Schultz and to other mobsters for opening his own bar in Broadway, even though Dempsey had warned them that you got to pay that. And apparently for Pancho Villa, who had the same anesthetist as the others, that one I particularly doubt. But Oni Madden was not a guy that you, you would not take at his word. If he said, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you, he would kill you. So... He is the most famous fighter he controlled, of course, was Primo Carnera. And it was thought because he loved uh, fellow Irishman McLaren and Foster that they would get a free pass. But I don't think Foster and McLaren were aware of it. And if they were, there was nothing they can do about only Madden controlling the judges and the referee. You're not going to go complain to him. And in fact, in the third fight, when Dempsey was the referee, and they didn't want Dempsey as the referee, it was a smart move by Madden because Dempsey was a big draw even though he was no longer champion and it helped fill the polo grounds to over 60,000 people. Mike Jacobs promoted that fight. And when Foster went berserk and he said to General Phelan at ringside, you told me that Dempsey would never referee this fight, that he asked for too much money and you lied and we're not fighting. And apparently Phelan said, ask Oni. It was up to Oni Madden because McCarnan won the second fight. And if he won the third fight, he would obviously retire. And so what happened over, uh, over the three fights? McCarnan loses the first fight. Six months later, he beats Ross, wins the title back. And that was a controversial fight because Arthur Donovan, the referee, had scored it heavily in favor of McLaren and then made comments after the fight about uh, how he thought Ross couldn't fight and he wasn't a good fighter. And that was that he should not have done that because that disqualified him for refereeing the third fight in favor of Jack Dempsey. But the first fight was a split decision win for Ross. Second fight was split decision win for McLaren. And third fight was a unanimous decision for Ross. And in that fight, there was a big controversy because uh, Dempsey had once again, you know, he, he had scored something like uh, seven rounds Ross, one round McLaren, and seven rounds even. And Dempsey knew how to score a fight. He did a great job refereeing it, but obviously the scorecard was a miss. As were the other ones, McLarna went to his grave saying, hey, you know, I won that fight and everyone knows it. And as Dempsey said years later, you know, what am I going to do? I'm one guy. I can't fight the mob. You know, not my job. So 
McLaren loses the last fight, and then he just fights three more times. Gets the worst beating of his life to Tony Canzanieri, and then he beats Canzanieri again, and in his final fight, he gives a bad beating to Lou Ambers, at which point he sits down with Pop Foster, and, and this is 1936, and says, I don't need the money anymore. You know, I've got upwards of a million dollars in the bank. And so he invested his money in tool and die shops, which made him a lot more money. And he also invested in certain instruments for airplanes, such as the clip that held the bomb in place, thing, the mechanism to help the bomb doors in airplanes. So during the war, he owned those fact, a lot of those factories. He made a lot of money. Uh, McLarnon lived to October 28, 2004, and he was completely cognizant to the end of his life. He was 97. And that summer I was filming Cinderella Man here in Toronto with Angelo Dundee, who was friends with him. And it never occurred to me to later to ask Angelo for his number. And I would have loved to have met him, but I didn't. And that breaks my heart. Um, Barney Ross served honorably in World War II. He got a purple heart. He also got hooked when because he, he got injured on morphine and then became a heroin addict. And he wrote a book about it. There was a terrible movie about it. And in 1947, when Israel was reinstated, he raised billions of dollars at that time to help the new fledgling state. And, and he went to all his mob friends to get all these expensive arms and put up money and guns, ammo, tanks, cannons to raise for the new uh, nascent state of Israel. And he died at the very young age of 58, January 17, 1967 of cancer after the fight before the fight and after each fight they were good friends they genuinely liked each other and they were friends all along and when ross had his trouble with drugs mcclarner went to help him and he, he said oh i always loved marty barney's a great guy he was a, a a good boy which was a great compliment back then. he could really fight he couldn't punch but he was a brilliant fighter i think i i beat him in the last fight but uh doesn't really matter now, but I, but you know, it was a close fight. And after uh, McClendon retired, Ross went on and fought some more, and he beat Seferino Garcia twice before Garcia became the world middleweight champ. You know, he beat a lot of guys, and then his last fight, as I said earlier, was against Hammer and Hank, Hobbinside Hank, Henry Armstrong, and he was taking a beating. It was just one fight too many, and Armstrong was too young and too quick, and. His corner, Sam Pian and Art Winch said, we're going to stop it, Barney. They're a crime. We can't, we can't watch this. You don't deserve this. You've been too good for boxing. And, and Ross said, I'm going to tell you, if you stop the fight, I'm never going to speak to you again. And my guys that I know will hurt you. And they didn't stop the fight. But they sent a messenger over to Armstrong's corner who said, Can, listen, you know, with 10 rounds in the books, you won every round. You're going to win the fight. Can you just let Barney survive with his dignity intact at the 15th round? So Ro Armstrong stopped hitting Ross to the head, went to the body, allowed Ross to go 15 rounds. He lost the fight, congratulated Armstrong, and then he quit. He retired from the ring, and he scuffled around for a long time trying to make money. But he was a beloved elder statesman in the sport of boxing and you know, was one of those great members of the real club, Cauliflower Club that would meet from time to time in California and in other cities. Um, it wasn't personal back then, except for the rare occasion. And as I said, you know, McLaren's heroes were Benny Leonard and, and uh, Joe Lewis. So they genuinely liked each other. 
three great fights. If if you want to know uh, what fights they would be similar to today, it would be the three the trilogy with uh, Gotti Ward or uh, Ali Frazier. They were that exciting, and uh, they're well worth watching. Two Hall of Famers, two gentlemen warriors, two of the greatest lighterweight fighters of all time. They put on a show for the agents of the tremendous skill sets. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Ring Talk. My name's Lou Eisen, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for watching. Have a great week.